Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you for the week of Friday, January 23rd of the year 2021. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again here as we are now getting settled into this new calendar year. All the craziness of 2020 now behind us. We have thoroughly, decisively recapped it put it in the ground, buried it, mourned it, stomped on it, done other things to it, and now we are here, ready to turn our attention to what this new year has to offer us, and we are so glad that all of you can be joining us once again. Yes, and you did say our, you're not a crazy person, just referring to, you know, yourself as multiple people. No, I am always the second voice on this program. This week I'm Dennis, the man who continues to be fascinated by Cameo at a healthy distance. (laughs) Yes, it's best to maintain a a safe social distance from from Cameo uh, at all times. Just all points in your life, be uh, before the coronavirus and after coronavirus, leave a good six feet between yourself and anything to do with Cameo. Yeah, so in case you're not familiar with Cameo, um, I envy you. You are maybe a better person than me, but um, Cameo is that that site that feels like it's like just a step away from ordering a prostitute online. And what I mean by that, that might not be a good a good description of what the site actually is, but what the site actually is, is literally paying celebrities to say whatever you want them to say. Yes, uh, they will I record mean, whatever quick, brief video for you, uh, different celebrities, different backgrounds, different amounts that they charge, uh, but they'll all do it. They will read the words that you put in their mouths. Yeah. Now, I believe we've talked about Cameo before on this program, probably as a nickname for myself. But, you know, it's, I think it's worth checking in every now and then and just sort of, um, kind of reaffirming how both ridiculous and sad sometimes, you know, the, the listings can be. I mean, not that I, again, I, I have no interest in purchasing any of these things and it, cause it just, again, feels very, very close to kind of prostitution. And, you know, reading through some of, like, the descriptions sometimes, it's like, oh, you're literally doing this because you need money to – for medical reasons? Ugh. I mean, yeah, I'd prefer to just donate to your GoFundMe rather than, you know, do this. But even still, like, that's a crazy thing. Anyways, without getting, you know, political into, like, the whole, like, you know, us being from Canada who grew up with socialized medicine trying to, like, you know, say, yeah, we're in support of that. Which, you know, I guess for some reason Americans are not okay with that for whatever reason. Anyways, all that aside, you look at sometimes and you see something that's either way too low of a number or way too high of a number. And you're like, which one's sadder and which one's more ridiculous? I I think it also has to be taken in the context of who the celebrity is that is uh, uh, behind that amount. Um you know, if it's someone that you know, that you know, uh, perhaps has meant a lot to you, uh, in your, uh, development into adulthood and you see them charging 30 bucks, well, that's going to seem kind of sad. The flip side can easily be if you see someone that, uh, you kind of only, that, that you're familiar with, but you're like, eh, they didn't really maybe mean that much, but they're charging that much. Holy crap, dude. It's sad. You think of yourself that, that highly. Yeah. But then, like, having said that, you look at the number of, like, reviews that some people have, which to me would imply number of purchases, and it's kind of like, holy smokes. So, 
I thought you were expensive, but 2,600 other people didn't, so you're rolling in the dough, I guess. And this is, uh, I mean, for a number of people, they are able to make a good chunk of coin off Cameo. Yeah, like the guy who played Kevin on The Office, from what I understand, like, just basically doing the basic math on how much he charges for a cameo and how many reviews he has. If we base it just on the number of re- reviewed cameos, he's made probably f- close to $500,000 just off of reviewed cameos. And from what I understand, I mean, just being around, you know, online commerce and stuff like that, you know, professionally and personally for the better part of the last, you know, 15, 20 years anyways, like we all kind of have seen Amazon and stuff like that for a long time. And most people don't review the stuff that they purchase, right? I would imagine. Uh, certainly not. In fact, it's, uh, my experience has been, it's a small minority of people who will actually go through, do the reviews, uh, of a product on that product page, uh, with whatever, uh, service e-commerce platform. I, I mean, I really can't recall the last time I left a review or a rating for something I purchased online short of the, the, Obvious thing being of uh, eBay. Yes, yes, five stars. I got the item. I'm happy with it. That's fine. Okay, you go ahead and give me a five-star rating as a uh, purchaser now. That's fine. That is the conduct. But a normal platform like Amazon or anything else like that? No, I I don't do it. And I'm pretty sure the majority of people don't do it because why? Why? What's the point? There's enough, likely enough reviews there already. Who has that kind of time? Like, unless you know that you're helping someone just starting up their business or like, you know, really trying to like reassure other people like, no, like this was life changing. And like those instances are so few and far between where it's like, are you going to actually honestly do that? But yeah, it's, it's very strange to me just to see, you know, someone charge that much and have that many reviews and anyways, but then, yeah, the, I guess the other point that I was going to make, like we were looking at, um, we, you know, just something that we like to do to get ready to record the show is like, you know, shoot, shoot the breeze, you know, talk about whatever. And one of the things that came across uh, our pre-show recording today was basically just kind of linking each other to ridiculous cameos we found. And then on occasion, you see one where it's like, like you said, not, not that the person meant a great deal, you know, to your development as an overall person, but, you know, sometimes, you know, the, uh, like professional wrestlers, you know, Mike the Legend and myself, we both watched WWF when we were kids. You know, we were wrestling fans when we were children. I mean, not to, not to say that Mike the Legend's not still a wrestling fan, but I mean, it was definitely a huge part of being a kid when we grew up. You know, you, if you're a young boy, you were into wrestling and Ninja Turtles. Those were like the things that everyone is into. Yeah, yeah, so, that's a fair assessment. Uh, I mean, yeah. the, the the it was basically just an action cartoon, but in real life back then. Exactly, and as such, you know, as an action cartoon, there were a number of different characters who were the wrestlers who were basically all these different over the top. But I mean, I don't need to explain wrestling <laughs> at a basic level here. But but oh yeah, no, like, I, oh no, I'm here for it. I'd like to hear it. No, it's just you know. The, <laughs> Each wrestler is a ridiculous character, blah, blah, blah. You know, when you're a kid, they kind of leave an indelible mark on your brain. Like, they're all – back then, a lot of them were just kind of stereotypes and stuff because we're talking about, like, the mid-late 80s, early 90s. 
So, you know, you'd, you'd have like a lot of ridiculous stereotypes, but yeah, like you, you remember their stage names, you remember their catchphrases and stuff. And it's just sort of a thing. So when you see someone pop up like that on cameo, like there is that part of your brain where it's like, Oh no way they're here. But then you look at the thing, you're like $35. And then you look at their description. Like, for example, we were looking at Coco B, Coco Beware. And it's like, I think they were charging like $30 and the, the description on his page was just, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this to help. You know, it's like anything helps. I'm getting a knee surgery done. Here's my GoFundMe page. It's like, holy crap. So like, basically this is my roundabout way of just trying to say like, how, what percentage of people on these sites like this would basically no longer be on these sites anymore if socialized medicine was a thing in the United States? Uh, I think uh, a good portion of them. Uh, and also, I, I, I believe a fair number of the GoFundMe campaigns we see uh, would dry up. Uh, yeah. And GoFundMe as a platform would have far less activity to it if there was such a thing as socialized medicine and people maybe not having to worry about their medical expenses to the same extent that they currently have to. Yeah. It just kind of cracks me up, though. Anyways, without getting too philosophical and way off topic for the purpose of our show, it just kind of cracks me up seeing, like, people have no problem spending 30 bucks towards someone's medical expenses in general if they know it's something that's going to help them. That's kind of just what taxes are, right? Anyways, food for thought for the time, for the day. Now, granted, like it's, you know, you could argue, yeah, but this is a person I know or a person I directly care about. It's like, yep. Generally, that's how taxes will often work with when someone you know or care about is in trouble. That's just. Anyways. Now, that being said, if there was socialized medicine, a lot of these people might still be doing it as just an additional source of income as well, and perhaps to maintain some level of contact with uh, a fan base that uh, they've developed. And uh, Oh, absolutely. I'm sure they're still making some, some good money off of it. Uh, it's also still fun to peruse through and see who's on there, who's doing what, um, and just and who, a... And who's charging what? Yes, that is one of the fun things, is to compare who's charging what. Uh, as you and I were uh, going through wrestlers before the show, uh, you found that Ric Flair is on Cameo and he's charging $500 per video. Yes. Which is a good chunk of change and, uh, uh, not something I will be engaging in at any point in the near term future. Yeah, or long term future. I mean, if I come into a stupid amount of money, like a lottery winnings or something, I can't rule it out. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Like if I just get, you know, pay Ric Flair a bunch of money just to, you know, give me like a morning pep video every morning. So I roll out of bed. There's just Ric Flair going woo in my face. I'm going to be set for the day. That's, that's fair. But I mean, I think the interesting comparison though, that we made, like the thing that I think we were talking about was that there could be, there almost should be like a barometer in your head of like set of like this person, I think is charging the right amount. And then you'd kind of compare people in, you know, in relativity to that other person. And I think for me, in terms of wrestlers, I saw Brett the Hitman Hart is on Cameo and he's charging, what, $125? Something like that. Yeah. He's charging over a hundred, but it's certainly not near the, the $500 mark of Ric Flair. No, exactly. But to me, again, 
I'm, I'm saying this all with a healthy distance. I don't actually think I would want to ever actually engage in cameo. Makes me feel a little bit too dirty. But if I were, you know, I feel like Brett the Hitman Hart for 125 bucks, fair. You know, he was like a lot of Canadian kids' favorite wrestler growing up. Like, definitely top five. Probably. It's certainly, and uh, his legacy and pedigree just in wrestling through the, uh, through the, uh, early, mid, and late 90s, uh, he was an important part of, uh, uh, so much of that era of wrestling, uh, from its development, uh, and became a just mainstream success, and he was just always there being a good, steady wrestler. That's an amount I think makes sense, you know, over a hundred bucks for, uh, Bret Hart. Now, on the flip side, uh, a wrestler from that era who is on Cameo, who's charging an amount that doesn't make sense, Virgil! <laughs> oh man. And yeah, Virgil has had quite, um, Virgil's done a lot of things on the internet in his shameless attempt to just get money for doing nothing. Yes, pretty much. Uh, he is, if you're not familiar with Virgil, he was the helper, uh, the personal assistant of the million dollar man Ted DiBiase way back in the day. Uh, he was the, yeah, the personal mail services valet of the million dollar man. That's his claim to fame. Uh, he made sporadic appearances in other companies through the years. Uh, he made an appearance with All Elite Wrestling, I think last year under the name Soul Train Jones. He's just kind of always been around and he'll basically do anything for money. And that's why he's on cameo charging, what, 69 or $79? It was 69. Which is a hilarious amount. And I'm sure it's not an accident. He chose that figure. Yeah. Now, just as a uh, user tip, if you go on the Cameo website and are scrolling through, you pull up uh, somebody's profile page. It'll have their photo, little description, the amount they're charging, reviews and whatnot underneath. If you click on the profile photo of the person's page on Cameo, it actually pops up with a uh, uh, short little video of them kind of giving you the se- the sell job of why you should pick them for your Cameo experience. And the one on Virgil's page is hilarious, sad, and totally ridiculous. Yeah. And just a, just a warning, he uses some pretty NSFW language, so if you're thinking of browsing Cameo at work, don't on his page. <laughs> <laughs> yes, your company will uh, have some questions for you about what you're doing on their platform on their time, but on your own time if you're perusing and whatnot. Virgil's uh, little profile ridiculous, hilarious, and it's clear he just doesn't really give that much of a shit. He just wants the money, and he's uh, completely ridiculous about it. Doesn't even care enough to turn off the TV that's in his room. Yeah, like, the his talking is battling for audio space with the television, which you can hear almost as well as him. <laughs> and he's clearly just in some kind of uh, undecorated bedroom and putting very little thought or effort or time into it. He's just going to do it. He's going to crank out as many of those videos as he can to get those $69 that help him on the road to being a millionaire. Yeah. Because I believe that was a like a crowdfunding campaign he launched a couple years ago. You know, just make me a millionaire. Yes. I don't remember what the status of that Kickstarter was because I think it was a Kickstarter. It was, yeah, Kickstarter, go something, Indiegogo, one of those platforms. But it was basically him just wanting money. And it's not like he was on experiencing any specific hardship at that moment in time. He just wanted money. He yeah. was just basically looking 
for a get rich quick scheme and then cameo came along so he's he's maybe not doing kevin from the office good but uh you know few yeah. people on cameo are oh sorry it was a gofundme okay it was basically just called make virgil a million um did, did it reach the million i don't think it did <laughs> well shoot that's why he's on cameo the, i mean yeah this was back in 2015 mind you but uh the, the i found an article talking about it that um, they said that, you know, for the 17 days, the the GoFundMe was up and only raised $70. So <laughs> I think people did not take it um, that seriously. So in those 17 days, he made the same amount for one Cameo video. Yes. All right. So best of luck to Virgil in his Cameo videoing future. And, uh, as I've said before, when we've spoken about Cameo on this program, it's just a, it's a fun time killer. It's a fun little rabbit hole to go down. I mean, the longer you spend on it, the sadder it kind of becomes. There are some moments of ridiculous and hilarity on there. Uh, just go peruse. Uh, maybe that's something you're interested in, or you know somebody who would be interested in it. There's a lot of different directions you can go to, uh, to go enjoy yourself on Cameo. Yeah. So having said all that, I will now take this opportunity to say maybe we should actually turn our attention to things that uh, are more specific to this program instead of just uh, you know, waxing on and on and on about Cameo. It's it's going to be there. It will, <laughs> it's, Cameo is never going to go away at this point. No, it's 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 now, I think, unfortunately, too entrenched in culture in general. So, um, yeah, that's it. So so good for Cameo, but uh, turning to attentions that or to matters that we normally turn our attention to let us uh, do that with uh, two uh, well one for sure and then kind of uh, uh, an a and a b but our ludicrous leadoffs this week uh, all of them pokemon related and we'll start with this first one that kind of harkens back to uh, a trend we saw a number of years ago the idea of twitch plays Blah. One of the first ones to gain real popularity during that period was Twitch Plays Pokemon, where the it was basically an AI system was set up so that people and commenters could uh, leave uh, in the comments of a specific Twitch stream uh, what they thought the next move should be in the game. And then the uh, basically actions with the most votes, those would uh, be taken and committed to the game. And that is how the game slash the Twitch community would play Twitch Plays Pokemon. Yeah. It actually was a really creative idea, and it uh, had some kind of followers, some some games kind of start up or similar things start up in the wake of that. But that was kind of the first one that really got the ball rolling. And now here we are, the year of our Lord, 2021, and there's a kind of a new take on that. It is uh, Twitter plays Pokemon. And it is all done and come from the brain of uh, a programmer who works at Game Law from Montreal, going by the name Constantine Leatar. And they have written a script that pretty much does the same thing, the same functionality, only it's done on Twitter. Yeah. So how that works, basically, is um, conceptually, it's pretty simple. If you're a follower of this account... Um, you can tweet your button input as a reply to the initial post or whatever, you know, yeah, just the, the initial post that the, uh, Constantin Leotard made, uh, to this 
page and then every 15 seconds they have a script running on some server somewhere that pulls all the most popular commands from the thread and then applies them to the game. Uh, the results of the commands are screenshotted and uploaded as the 400 by 400 new Twitter avatar for the page. And then I would imagine that like, I, I haven't really looked into it too much, but I guess as new, um, as new avatars are uploaded, you then tweet in response to that. And then, yeah, it's played that way. So every 15 seconds, the avatar updates with, you know, you know, whatever the, the current winning, uh, input pattern is. So if, you know, a bunch of people are spamming up 15 seconds later, it'll be up one square, up one square, up one square until eventually, you know, something else happens like maybe a or B or like if you want to talk to someone or buy something from a store or whatever else. Um, and obviously if you want to check it out yourself, um, be prepared. The thread is massive, huge, obviously, because it's, everyone is basically, you know, trying to control a game of Pokemon by talking controls at the same time. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> if, if I was, you know, one of the creators of Twitter, what, 12, 13 years ago when Twitter was created? 15 years ago even, maybe? Something like that. It's it's not young. Yeah. So if I was one of the creators of Twitter and, you know, you told me one day there will be an account where someone is using Twitter, you know, using the system of Twitter um, to basically – allow a community of people play a video game collaboratively, I would first look at you and go, what? How? What? <laughs> and then I would think you're crazy, but then I'd also, you know, I actually don't know what I would think because then I'd be like, how many people are on my website in this year? What? <laughs> it's like, this website is meant for people to like, you know, talk about stuff. How is there enough content on my site now that like people can just make frivolous, ridiculous accounts and this will just be a thing? Huh? I, I, I mean, I'd be heartened by that too, because it's, uh, bringing about a lot of engagement on the part of many different people from all corners of the world to kind of partake in this, in this experiment, uh, to see if it can actually work. Now, how far they, this playthrough of the game actually is, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, perusing the account, uh, we see an image that apparently the, uh, community has been able to earn themselves the Thunder Badge. And at the current moment we are recording this program, a Graveler has uh, just defeated a Voltorb. So uh, good for them. Uh, and it looks like the lineup of uh, Pokemon that the community has going for them, there's a Graveler, a Wartortle, a Fero, I believe a Gloom, and a uh, it's an Abra or an... It's either an Abra or a Kadabra. But one of those, you know, first or second evolved forms of the uh, psychic Pokemon. So there you go. So that is a neat thing that's happening on Twitter that really anyone can do. Anyone has access to because it's Twitter. It is another way in which we have democratized communication and given everyone a voice. And uh, basically anyone can interact with Pokemon that way. That is, of course, the flip side of our next two stories, which do not allow for everyone to have access, do not allow for anyone to participate. Uh, these next two ludicrous lead-offs are solely for the domain of the 1%. Yeah, so 
I have a comment I'm going to make after these that I'll make after we talk about this, but um, we'll just get right into this. We've talked about, I mean, 2020 was kind of shaping up a little bit to be the year where people started paying ridiculous amounts of money for um, Pokemon cards. Yeah, I think we had the the story of like a specific Charizard card that uh, went or that maybe went 2019. Um, time's kind of a blur. 2020 really did a number on all of us. But uh, yeah. we've also had stories in the past of a uh, an entire original Pokemon, like complete set of Pokemon cards from the first run that sold for, you know, a, a pretty healthy chunk of change. And it seems Pokemon cards, they are kind of going to be uh, the new hotness in terms of collectability and also investments for people. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Like, anyways, um, so on that note... Um, I guess this is probably a record. I don't think this is the most money we've seen for a Pokemon card related thing, but what it is, is I think probably the most amount of money for an original Pokemon trading card game booster box. So, you know, a booster box being a box full of, I think, uh, 30, it's 36 booster packs, which each contain 11 cards, total of 396 cards all of which are likely gem mint condition due to still being in shrink wrap. So someone had one of these original booster boxes uh, and it basically they, they had a heritage auction event in Dallas, Texas. Um, la- well, this past Thursday um, and it sold for a record of $408,000. A box, a still sealed this is the important point. It is still from that original era of Pokemon cards. Still sealed in the original shrink wrap, selling for $408,000, which is quite a bit of money and actually surpasses a previous auction that happened last November for a very similar booster box of Pokemon cards that sold for $360,000. Yeah. So it's worth noting here that... um of the cards included in this original base box, there's a chance for it to include uh, the original Charizard card, of which, you know, we've seen people making, you know, anywhere between $150,000 and $220,000 off of in the last little while. Uh, yeah, the this is this, again, the first edition base set is what this is. And it's increasingly rare thanks to its limited printing. Um, and which is just driving up the, uh, the prices that uh, collectors and investors are paying and going to be paying for these sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. In, in the last year, just for context as well, um, you, there's a rapper named logic. You might be aware of him. Might not, whatever. There's a rapper named Logic. He is around our age and he purchased a holographic Charizard card for $220,000, which at the time I think set the record for the most costly individual Pokemon card purchase. So whoever bought this booster box has a chance that they have one of those in there. Entirely possible. And they may be able to surpass that amount of $220,000 that Logic paid just for that Charizard card. Now, if you maybe luck out and maybe have more than one in there, holy crap. Uh, 
Now, the real question is, do you open this box and go looking to see if you have rare cards in there, or do you just leave the box as it is with an element of mystery to it and then hold on to it for however long, a year, two years, then sell it as still a box from the original run of Pokemon cards in mint condition? Yeah. And maybe this next little thing we'll talk about will entice you to open it. Maybe, um, because, you know, we're, we're talking about a whole box set selling f- for a $408,000, not a box set, just a box of booster cards. Yes. Like a booster box. Um, yeah, basically what the store would have, you know, had come in, they'd open it up and then, you know, they have it at the till of whatever card comic shop you'd be at, uh, as a kid back then, open it up, yeah. you'd grab a couple packs and ask your parents for more money to buy them. Yeah. So like typically like when you're going to go buy a booster box of, you know, Pokemon cards or magic cards or whatever else, when they're new, they're probably going to run you about $200 for a box. Because if you're going to be, you know, if it's intended to be sort of more for like either a store or like a draft format or something for the, what did I say? 36 packs, like 30, like a pack of Pokemon cards is going to be going for like, you, you'd probably buy a pack of Pokemon cards for like five bucks. So 36 times five, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, you know, obviously at every level up, things get cheaper, you know, at the individual level, but more expensive overall. So yeah, I don't need to explain, you know, basic supply stuff here. That's kind of like a basic thing, but, um, yeah, as we said, the most expensive card previously purchased was a Charizard card, uh, holographic Charizard card, mint condition for $220,000 from this original, uh, first edition of you know, the first edition, first printing of these cards. But um, that amount was pa- surpassed. That amount is no longer actually accurate because on, as of the 21st, you know, it was brought to our attention on Kotaku.com um, who it was brought to their attention through CGCcomics.com uh, that, well, the $220,000 actually looks like chump change compared to the new, Record. Yes, so that $220,000, that was just for a, as you said, holographic Charizard. And I understand, as we've uh, talked for Pokemon on this program in the past, Charizard, kind of your favorite Pokemon, and that's fine. But everyone knows uh, Charizard pales in comparison to Blastoise, because a Blastoise with water cannons on, a back, on its back can exterminate a Charizard no problem. And that's exactly what has happened here in terms of Pokemon cards. <laughs> yes. And the expensiveness uh, and the price point paid for these cards because it was through an auction, uh, done of CGC comics that there was a Blastoise. Now this is a very specific Blastoise card here. So I'm going to run off the name here. It is a Blastoise commissioned presentation Galaxy Star hologram card that was sold at auction, just this individual card for for one card. Again, it's a Blastoise commissioned presentation Galaxy Star hologram card that was done at auction, $360,000. Now, not only is it a Blastoise card, so obviously it's going to eliminate this silly $220,000 Charizard card. Bah, why'd you even get out of bed? But there's there's an important caveat here with this, uh, with this very specific Blastoise card, and this is a card that actually was part of a test run 
that was released by Wizards of the Coast back in 1998, prior to the full North American release uh, of the original Pokemon cards. Yes. So this one, it's very obviously a test card in the fact that there is nothing on the back of the card. And so what I mean by that is you've probably seen a Pokemon card once or twice in your life, you know, up to this point. I know you have. I know I have. Uh, and on the back of a Pokemon card, the middle of it has the image of the Pokeball and the word mark of Pokemon at the top and bottom on the back of it. The front side, of course, will have the specific Pokemon, the blurbs, the the artwork, whatever. But the back side just says Pokemon, two word marks, and a Pokeball. However, this Blastoise card does not have that. It is blank. Because it the is... Back, the back of it's blank, not the, the Blastoise side. Yes, yes. No, otherwise, what the hell's the point of it? It's a piece yeah. of paper. <laughs> it's a piece of paper with the Pokemon logo on the background. Who cares? <laughs> but no, yeah, the, the Blastoise side was not blank, but the Pokemon logo side was blank. Yes, and so that's what makes it really stand out from being from that very specific test run, so that you know it's a very, very rare card when it's a test run card, and that's what helped drive up the collectability. Now, $360,000, you might think for that price, you're getting something that is like mint condition, still in the package, graded to like a, a 9.5 or above by the you know card grading society. Not so with this card. This one has seen some wear. It's, it's had some good care taken uh, of it through the years, but it's only rated to a, an 8.5 out of 10, which is, I mean, it's not the best. It's not the worst. I mean, it qualifies as close to mint, but not actually mint. But even so, it's a rare-ass test card that went for $360,000. Yeah. So, I mean, again, that might or might not influence your decision of if you're buying a box of like a booster box of Pokemon cards, probably, probably not. But you know, with every Pokemon card that gets more expensive, it's like a better sign for old Pokemon cards in general, I think. Oh, certainly it's going to, to raise the market and just bring more interest to Pokemon cards. And my point originally that I was going to make was, are we at the point now where, um, you know, like there's, there's those investor bros on the internet that, you know, are all over crypto at the current moment. Are they going to start moving towards basically buying and selling of Pokemon cards? Is this like, I know you mentioned it like being, you know, earlier being like maybe a potential means of, uh, investment or a way to, you know, see a return on investment by buying Pokemon cards, selling Pokemon cards and hoping for the best. Is this actually going to be like a new thing start taking off now that we see these cards start to have significant value associated with them? I dare say it's possible. And uh, we've seen it before with uh, previous stories of Pokemon cards going for crazy amounts, uh, individual cards. You know, even if it's under $100,000, you're still getting maybe 75, 80 grand for like a rare card of whatever Pokemon or some sort of, uh, some, some story to it or some aspect of that card that makes it rare, makes it collectible and, you know, crazy amount gets paid out. But, uh, I, I think what's going to be a factor, not just the, uh, the Bitcoin bros who are maybe making a, you know, good amount of money now that, uh, Bitcoin continues to reach all time highs, although it's retracted from all time highs in the past several days, it's, it's not going to be completely nothing. So, 
there are people out there who have made some good money on Bitcoin. They are few and far between. Let's be clear about that. Yeah. And they were the early adopter, early adopters who maybe had, you know, a good amount of bitcoins left in their wallet and uh, are still holding on to them, still believing it'll come through and it's finally come through, but they and probably they alone are the only ones, but you need something to do with that money. I mean, once bitcoin kind of tops out, unless you think bitcoin's just going to shoot to the moon forever. And this is what we've seen too with, uh, uh, copies of old rare collectible games as well. They sell for six figure sums is that investors, maybe from other fields, other disciplines like art collectors, comic collectors, uh, card collectors of baseball or, or football or whatnot, uh, they are starting to turn their attention to basically nerdy endeavors like Pokemon cards, like video games uh, and things of that nature because the prices are still reasonable in comparison to what they might be seeing in their fields and they need somewhere to put their money and things to buy because their fields, their disciplines are kind of expensive. Yeah. And Pokemon cards and old games are going to be it for the next while. (laughs) And it's entirely possible that uh, there is a uh, percentage of people who are perhaps our age, your age, my age, uh, maybe a slight bit older, maybe a slight bit younger, but who have come into just vast sums of money and they're also then using it to buy rare parts of their youth. And also, just to be clear, there's only a few months between you and I, so saying your age, my age, <laughs> it's pretty much the same age. <laughs> I mean, if you want to look at it that way, sure, Grandpa, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean... It's like I said, it's entirely possible that we have uh, people of that age range who were young when Pokemon cards were new, when they played these games on the, you know, old games on the NES or whatnot, and are just kind of buying rare parts of their youth as investments. I mean, that's the only thing you can really do with these old cards and old games and whatnot is you hold on to them, you put them in a safety deposit box, and you just wait uh, for a couple of years and hope they appreciate in value and put them up for auction. Yeah. Like, these are not things you dare put out on display for fear of, one, they get them getting stolen, or two, maybe they get knocked onto the floor, maybe they get crushed, maybe they get broken in some way, maybe someone spills grape juice on them. Who knows? <laughs> yes. So, uh, either way, uh, we're only going to see crazier amounts of money for these things. Yeah, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see how ridiculous it gets. I... I mean, there's going to be a day we see million-dollar Pokemon cards. Probably, yeah. Like, like just individual cards. Maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but somewhere down the road, we're going to see that. I'm, I'm sure of it. But uh, it won't be you or I doing the purchasing of those cards. Yes, it definitely won't. <laughs> or if it is you or I, we're not going to talk about it pro- publicly on this program. No, no, <laughs> we won't. Uh, but one thing we will talk about uh, is the fact, uh, well, we're, we're just going to kind of circle back for a moment uh, and loop it back into one of the topics from our previous year in review programs, looking back at the year that was 2020, the dumpster fire year of our Dark Lord, that uh, Epic Games decided to pick a fight last year with Apple uh, and to a lesser extent Google, although still we're going to fight with Google, but they focused their attention on Apple because they got tired of paying the uh, the App Store tax and just giving up 30% of uh, any sort of transaction to Apple. And, of course, that led to a whole very deliberate set of uh, plans, a very orchestrated plans, but uh, so much of their effort and attention was paid to 
essentially outing Apple as a monopoly and their store practices on the App Store as being a monopoly. But it turns out that Epic Games is also doing their best to uh, make it a worldwide effort in having the international community recognize the uh, App Store uh, policies of both Apple and Google as being monopolistic practices. Yes, it's not just North America, App or Epic Games is taking this fight across the world. Yeah, they're going international. They sure are. They uh, uh, have filed paperwork with the UK Competition Appeal Tribunal, and they did this in December, basically when no one was looking because we're all preoccupied with Christmas, the end of the year, is the world going to survive, this, that, the other thing. But they fired this, filed this paperwork to... Uh, and they allege in this paperwork that Apple and Google have abused their, quote, dominant position in the iOS and Android distribution market by, quote, unfairly restricting competition and, quote, reserving to themselves the sole payment processing mechanism for purchase of in-app content. So they are alleging that both companies are using their position to, quote, charge unfair prices for the distribution of apps and say that each firm has, quote, engaged in anti-competitive agreements slash concerted practices in the UK and EU, end quote. Yeah, so it'll be very interesting to see what happens here. Uh, yeah, like the, the TLDR is that Epic is trying to convince them that Apple and Google were actually wrong to pull Fortnite from sale overall on iOS and Android when the company chose to break marketplace rules. But it, it, it'll be very interesting to see what their, what arguments they have beyond that, because it's sort of at a glance, you might look at this and go, yeah, well, there's terms of service. You broke them. You know, the punishment in the terms of service for breaking the terms of service is denial of the service. So what do you want to do? But yeah, it'll be, it'd be very interesting to see if this avenue does anything either. Like it, when I see that they're doing this here, it almost feels like an army trying to stretch itself too thin by going on an offensive on multiple fronts rather than concerning a, an effort in one place and, you know, either winning or whatever, like putting your all into one battle, it really feels like they're might be spreading themselves a bit thin. I, I can Maybe see I, that argument you're making. And, uh, if they're looking perhaps for precedent, uh, one jurisdiction, say, you know, any sort of decision rendered in the U.S. won't necessarily have any bearing on decisions rendered by the U.K., uh, no, European or, commissions or whatnot. So, or vice versa, of course. Like, that's the that's the kind of tricky thing about international law. Like, it's not a U.N. matter. <laughs> like, they're not bringing this to the U.N. saying this this is a human rights problem and it has to stop. No, it's it's literally business. Like, so I, I get what they're doing, and I get. And still, I am on their side, generally, but it does feel like they're kind of going about it in a weird way now. And this uh, application that they've filed with the UK uh, Competition Appeal Tribunal, uh, this specific, I guess, consumer protection body if, or competition protection body in the UK, um, it... Uh, 
it's going to take a while. This also strikes as strikes me as less of a uh, well orchestrated effort as what we saw unfold through the summer with their campaign against Apple. Yeah. Like, exactly. This is just them doing the paperwork and hoping it works out as opposed to trying to earn sympathy and try and uh, rally their their supporters and Fortnite players to convince Apple to put it, put Fortnite back on the App Store after it was taken down because Epic Games decided to release their own payment structure and payment system for the game that was outside the App Store and Apple of course is not going to like that. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see how well this goes. This is, of course, going to uh, take a while to unfold. This is You're now into the realm of government bureaucracy, dealing with a government body. Yeah, which is obviously going to be slower than the courts for business. It absolutely will. This is just uh, filing in the UK. It will, of course, not have any bearing across the rest of Europe because the UK is a unique creature unto themselves who don't believe in the rest of Europe. <laughs> well, not not since the Brexit happened, no. Exactly. So I'd imagine uh, Epic Games will have a filing to prepare for some sort of uh, European Union competition tribunal as well. Yeah. And then after that, uh, they'll have covered most of their bases because all that's really left for major regions is China and Russia. And uh, good luck. <laughs> Unless they really know which which wheels to uh, grease, they're uh, not really going to get any sort of uh, rendered verdict in those jurisdictions. So uh, good on them, but we'll see how it plays out. Again, uh, around May is uh, when their trial is supposed to begin, as they uh, have a uh, uh, judge trial with uh, to go over their lawsuit with Apple. So we'll see how it goes. But in the meantime, speaking of gaming business, uh, some other kind of uh, interesting news coming out in the last uh, week or two in the gaming world. Uh, Disney kind of rejigging some deals and some aspects of their existing Lucasfilm game aspects. Uh, first, they announced that they would be bringing back the Lucasfilm games brand as kind of the one home, the one hub to put all Star Wars and Lucasfilm-related game titles under. So all future Lucasfilm, or sorry, all future Star Wars games, anything else that might fall under the banner of Lucasfilm games, will actually have, like, the, you know, startup logo and, and property of type image at the beginning of the game. Okay, cool. Disney did disband LucasArts, basically when they bought Lucasfilm back in 2012, and took the approach then of, uh, hey, we're not going to take on the liability and the cost and expense of making games. We'll just license things. So they didn't really need the Lucasfilm or Lucas Games, sorry, LucasArts brand. There's a lot of titles going on there. They didn't need the LucasArts yeah. brand so much. So they just let other people deal with it. And one of the first deals they signed, in fact, the biggest deal they signed, was a 10-year deal of exclusivity with Electronic Arts to make big AAA Star Wars games. And so, kind of a surprising announcement, after they announced the return of Lucasfilm Games branding, that Disney announced and Ubisoft announced that Ubisoft is actually at work on an open-world Star Wars game. Yeah, um, from the team that brought us the division, you know, the, the whole Ubisoft studio that did the division. Um, yeah. And it's going to be using the division snowdrop engine 
and it's direct, it's led by the director of the division two, Julian, uh, Garrity. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be an open world thing. Like, I mean, I'm not super familiar with the division, but I understand it is an open world game and it's got, uh, that going for it. So, so the the timing of this is interesting as well too because as i said uh when the deal of exclusivity was announced between Disney and EA back in 2013 it was i believe for a 10 year time period and we are not quite through that 10 year time period yet so it's not entirely clear how exactly this is going to work out or why this deal was announced now the best thing uh, only thing i can think of is that uh, this game won't be out until after the deal has concluded. And Disney is maybe just kind of showing that, hey, you know, we'll start working with other developers, but that deal is still in place. We're not going to pay, you know, we're not going to buy out EA's last few years of exclusivity. Screw that. But you can start working on games now. And if they come out after that, you know, contract is up. All right, then. See, this whole thing kind of doesn't really makes sense to me the the Lucasfilm games rebrand thing or like bringing this brand back is there much value in this Lucasfilm games thing i mean the value in lucas arts itself was that they made their own different games like they they didn't do just star wars stuff they did like they were like a, a development studio unto themselves that kind of drove a lot of interesting IPs, like new original IPs. That was the value with LucasArts. The, it seems to me like Disney is still just using this for Star Wars, which they don't need, like they can slap whatever label they want onto it and people aren't going to pay attention to that. It's Star Wars. Like if it's an official Star Wars game that comes out with Disney money backing it to, um, like advertise it and stuff, that's, that's, you know, more important. Like ultimately it doesn't matter who develops or who, you know, distributes or how it's distributed or what banner of, you know, what game division put their logo on. Like it seems like a weird thing to kind of care about. It does. I wonder if this is an exercise in, uh, in treading on nostalgia for, for people as well to just to see the Lucasfilm, uh, games brand back again, which, but, but the, my point though is that Lucasfilm Games was rebranded LucasArts in 1990. So, so anyone that remembers Lucasfilm Games as Lucasfilm Games, like you're kind of like looking at a kind of narrower window of time. Yeah, you are. It wasn't, uh, I mean, I think it spent more time as, as LucasArts than it ever did as Lucasfilm Games. Oh, way more. Yeah. Because I think it was founded in, or in and around 1982, kind of when Lucasfilm itself was kind of founded. So, like, there's only a finite amount of time between 1982 and 1990, you know. So, and then if LucasArts was LucasArts from 1990 until whenever it was finally dissolved, what, a few years ago? Uh, 2013. 2013. So that's a good 23 years. So that's where the nostalgia comes from. But again, like, the nostalgia for LucasArts is different from the nostalgia to Star Wars. This is true. Uh, and there's greater value in nostalgia for Star Wars than there would be in Lucasfilm games. Exactly. So 
unless you're actually unless the announcement was we're getting the band back together, we've got you know Tim Schafer on board, we're all these other people, like we're getting people back in here as LucasArts and we're gonna try to make some classic LucasArts style games, that means a totally different thing than oh, we're slapping a Lucasfilm games logo on new Star Wars and maybe other games. Like, what is that? Like, okay, who cares? Big whoop. You're still Disney and you're still hiring Ubisoft to do it, so it's a Ubisoft game. Like, that's what I think, right? Uh, it's true. It's almost like they're uh, putting their management stamp on it by having the Lucasfilm games logo. Um, I, I, But they already did that with the Disney logo. Yeah, this is true, too. So I, I couldn't... I'm at a loss. I I can't even, and it's not as though this is going to be a step for Disney slash Lucasfilm Games to get back into self-development of games. No, no. Disney's already shown they don't want to take on that liability, that expense. It's more profitable just to license things and let other people take on that expense. Exactly. Yeah, they get paid regardless whether or not your game makes any damn money. We've gotten paid up front plus a deal to have, you know, a little bit on the back end or slash a little bit per each uh, sell of the game. Yeah. that That's how they would have structured the deal. It's going to be in their favor because they have the desirable property, which, of course, then makes them money. And then they strike these very favorable deals, they make more money, yada, 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 uh, you know, tear down the capitalist system. <laughs> yeah, so much. Uh, that's basically how it works. Now, EA, for their end of things, uh, will still be making Star Wars games. Uh, as part of the press release, Disney Games executives uh, Sean Shopta said, quote, EA has been and will continue to be a very strategic and important partner for us now and going forward. But we did feel like there's room for others. End quote. So maybe they just didn't like what they were getting out of EA and maybe the uh, uh, long lead time in between games has kind of been a problem. So I I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Also, we don't really have any more details on what this open world Star Wars game is going to be, uh, what it's going to entail, what it's going to look like. This seems like a very preliminary press release just put out to say, hey, there's a thing that's happening, which is kind of similar to another big announcement from a Disney property that came in that same time. Uh, Bethesda, who you may know as a company that sold out for $7.5 billion to Microsoft, or is in the process of doing that. I imagine a deal of that size and magnitude takes uh, quite a bit of lawyers and quite a lot of paperwork to actually finally close. Yeah. But Bethesda, they've announced that they are going to be working on a new Indiana Jones game uh, from the development studio behind Wolfenstein. So the new Wolfenstein games were developed by Machine Games, and they are now being put to work on a new Indiana Jones title. Yeah, which, again, Indiana Jones, in my head, Indiana Jones plus video game, that equals LucasArts to me. Like, that's that's a perfect opportunity of what you could have... Anyways... All this aside, Bethesda, I'm sure they're going to do a fine job, depending on, you know, your opinion of <laughs> Bethesda games at launch. Um, but yeah, uh, interesting, strange choice, I think, maybe also a little bit for Indiana Jones. 
in terms of what, as in that's the property they're working on, or for for that game to be developed by Machine Games slash Bethesda? Yeah, that's what I mean. Ah, yes. Like, the Wolfenstein developer making an Indiana Jones game? I mean, arguably, I guess, one of the Indiana Jones movies did take place during, like, World War II Nazi Germany times, so maybe there's some crossover there? Well, that was going to be the uh, the connection I was going to point out, is that, I mean, they've worked on Wolfenstein, so they have familiarity, you know, working with Nazis, so... <laughs> well, I mean, when you phrase it that way, it maybe sounds like something that you don't intend to make it sound like, but... Uh... <laughs> Um, I mean, working on games that involve Nazis. Yes, there you go. Okay, yes. <laughs> not, not not working with Nazis. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I mean, Nazis, of course, making up a very important, uh, you know, antagonistic aspect of the Wolfenst- new Wolfenstein games. So, well, uh, every Wolfenstein game. Yeah, really. that's true. Uh, so we'll see what form this takes. There was only about a 20, 30 second teaser video that was shown off. Although I know some people have already done some deep dives and some sleuthing on what is shown in that, uh, announcement teaser. Uh, and from what some people have said, they believe this game might be set in Italy. Uh, I think after, uh, after the first movie hmm. in between, uh, uh, you know, the first movie, but before the last crusade. So. Uh, we shall see. I mean, in Italy, in the 40s, you still had Nazis. You sure did. So, just going to throw that out there. So, we'll see. Uh, I'll also, uh, you know, be interested to see if this actually turns out to be a good Indiana Jones game, because I struggle to think of uh, a title I can point to as a good Indiana Jones game. <laughs> yeah, um, all of the old NES ones were garbage. I, I believe there were some that made their way onto Super Nintendo as well, uh, but those never really struck me as being big titles or, or considered good quality titles. Yeah. And I know there was a uh, an Indiana Jones game for the Wii of all systems, uh, oh god, back 10 plus years ago now at this point, when everyone was developing stuff for the Wii, and I think think the big deal about that last Indiana Jones game for the Wii is that it actually was allowed to use the appearance of Harrison Ford. Maybe not so much his voice, but uh, his physical appearance in his face as well. We'll see if Harrison Ford signs off, or aka see if uh, various people pony up the monies for him to be involved in this project. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, where it goes from there, who knows? I mean, there's still talk of uh, a new Indiana Jones movie, the fifth one that, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg is supposed to be working on. We'll see if that ever comes to fruition. Yeah. Or maybe Indiana Jones is, or sorry, maybe Harrison Ford is just kind of done with Indiana Jones and he's just too old for this shit. Yeah. He really gives off that energy a lot of the time. It's, it's, it's always cracked me up the amount of disdain he has basically for talking about talking in a nostalgic sense for any role he's been a part of. I know, like I seem to remember even when he would be on talk shows and, you know, one of the common talk show questions being uh, like, Oh, do you have any keepsakes from when you were Indiana Jones or when you were hand solo? Do you have the jacket? Do you have this? And I seem to remember his specific response on one of the shows was, hell no, I'm rich. I don't need any of that shit. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. So, <laughs> so this, it's like, okay, yeah, fair. 
Yeah, the reverence uh, he gets from fans for, uh, you know, his place in these roles and, and movie history is a one-way street. Yeah, it's like this was literally just another role to him. Like, yeah, okay, I was – though it is funny to see those, you know, certain like legendary actors wearing like these big shirts where it's like, you know, the – I it's like I was this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy get over it kind of thing. It's like, see, like that was kind of a funny little trend for a while. Like he was like Han Solo and – and, uh, Indiana Jones and, you know, whatever else, Decker and all these other classic characters. I'm already over it kind of thing. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Uh, I think there's a story I read too where uh, somebody had asked him, uh, after his appearance in the most recent, uh, or one of the more recent Star Wars movies, if Han Solo, uh, became a Force ghost. And his I, response, I believe, was something to the effect of, what the hell is a Force ghost? <laughs> it's like what what are you talking about i don't care about this <laughs> yeah i'm in the movies <laughs> it's like that's the it's the funny difference between someone who's a fan of a thing and someone who is just in the thing like they're, they're oftentimes it's better when those worlds don't cross right <laughs> yes Yes, it's, uh, he, he go, he's a professional about it. I'm sure he knows his lines, hits his marks, emotes, uh, in the way that the director is looking for, you know, can find the cameras and he's probably, my guess is he's a professional, you know, the whole time he's on set, but it's all just a job to him. Yeah. Because it's like, you, you can tell when people, are fans of things going into things because they treat their roles, I think, with a little bit different level of reverence. And sometimes you don't want that. Like, Han Solo with that level of reverence would be a crappy character. Like, same thing with Indiana Jones. Like, you don't want some Indiana Jones that, like, is aware that he's, like, some badass Indiana Jones. Like, you know, he... Oh, I'm setting up a great film stereotype. Ooh, or I am a great film stereotype. Isn't this awesome? Like, I love this role. Like, no, like you want him to just not be any different and kind of have that healthy distance from, you know, the fan perception of it. So I like Harrison Ford as the roles he's in and I like, you know, his approach to it, but I'm sure, I'm sure it probably rubs some people the wrong way. And that's fine. Uh, they can be rubbed all they want. Uh, he's not going to change. No. <laughs> No, he's not. I think I read for his uh, his appearance in that first of the you know new Star Wars trilogy. Uh, I guess Episode Seven it uh, counts as like he got paid twenty five million just for the like that one appearance in that one movie. Yeah, he wasn't in it for very long. No, he uh, and he knew he was a necessary part, and he got his money, and he doesn't care. Yeah. But uh, let's move on to some things that uh, other people might care about. We spoke about Pokemon off the top. We'll talk a bit more about Pokemon now. Perhaps you will care about the fact that there's a new Pokemon game coming out for the Switch. Now it's announced as coming out on April 30th. That is the new Pokemon Snap game, literally called New Pokemon Snap. Yeah, so if you remember Pokemon Snap from back in the day, it wasn't really much of a game. It was an interesting experience, but... I mean, as someone that rented it when it first came out and was a little bit disappointed because once he realized, like, I, I realized there wasn't really much to it. It was one of those instances where I took it back to the rental place and tried to exchange it for something else because it was like, if I got this for two days, I want it to be more of a 
challenge and something that I can get more out of than just an on rails, you know, experience where I have to take photos and nothing comes of it, <laughs> which is what Pokemon Snap is. Yes, it's very much an on rails photography experience. Yeah, which is fine. I'd be very interesting. It, I'd be very interesting to interested to see what they do with it. With you know, given the technological advances we've had since you know the N sixty four and now, uh, multiple stages, multiple. Like maybe you could have unlocked different routes, or maybe there's different nuance you can do. Maybe zoom levels are different, or whatever else. Like I can see it bear, being, you know. Interesting. Uh, certainly, and maybe uh, your camera, uh, the camera you use in this new game, you can record, you know, segments of video with it as well. Maybe some funny or cute interaction of, you know, whatever Pokemon doing, uh, you know, things in the wild or whatnot. Uh, and this game will have the benefit, too, of having or, or coming out now in 2021 when there's several hundred Pokemon. When the first one came out, there was just the 150 yeah, and, and which of course there's very you know limited experience. The N64 limited in terms of what it can fit on the cartridges and what it can well, do hardware wise. But this, I, I'd imagine you should be able just to soar with the flying Pokemon, go underwater with the water Pokemon. Like I'm, I'm expecting a whole lot of different levels and experiences with this game. I'm fairly certain that even the original Pokemon Snap probably didn't have all 150 original Pokemon in it. No. I seem to remember there being kind of a limited amount. Like, you go through the levels a few times and just kind of see different things unfold, maybe, but generally it was all kind of the same. Like, I want to say maybe there might have been, like, a third of the Pokemon in that game. Yeah, my sense of uh, the original one was that there may have been around 50. It was an extremely limited experience, and even if you managed to coax some some secret Pokemon out if you read a game guide or something, it'd only be one or two. You're not getting the full Pokemon experience. Maybe, again, a limitation of the technology. Maybe they just wanted to uh, play to the most popular Pokemon at the time because Pokemon Snap was coming out uh, during, really, the the ascent of uh, Pokemon into mainstream popularity. And so they may, yeah. have, may have just played and played to what people knew at the time, but there's a whole lot more you can do now. So, and not only that, I'd imagine there's some social aspects to this new Pokemon Snap game as well, where you can probably take images and then upload them to your account, to your social media channels, and just share and compare what you did and what you managed to photograph compared to other people. Yeah. Oh, and just after doing a little bit of looking, apparently the original Pokemon Snap featured 63 of the original 151 Pokemon. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say that Wikipedia entry is a lie. A goddamn lie. Well, I mean, because I was curious and, you know, while my disappointment in renting the game was not the last time I played the game, you know, I did know people that owned the game afterwards and, you know, saw, I did see more of it afterwards and it was kind of, there were interesting things you could do. Like, you know, you could upgrade your vehicle to go faster or you could get different types of Pokeballs to like move things and Pokemon out of the way to see other Pokemon. But yeah, 63 of the 151. Now I would imagine probably every single Pokemon that has ever been a Pokemon is probably fair game. I mean, if not, it should be. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, expectations are going to be different. And I will say, at least the, uh, with the experience of the, uh, original Pokemon Snap, of course, that's all we have to go by. The new one is not released yet. Won't be till April 30th. Um, I mean, it was a different gameplay experience, but looking back on it, it was actually just a relaxing pursuit. Uh, you know, a game where perhaps it didn't really have high stakes, wasn't life or death. You weren't on the edge of your seat the whole time or whatever the case may have been. So I wonder if it'll be uh, picked up as one of those more relaxing endeavors, kind of how Animal Crossing has been and accepted uh, over its past, over this past year. Yeah, I could see that. You can just, if they, if they do it right, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, you've had a long day. You just need to relax. So you go on a photo safari and just look and snap some Pokemon. Yeah. Yeah. So April 30th is when that comes out. But uh, something we haven't mentioned, but will mention now, is the fact that this year, uh, this year 2021, uh, is the 25th anniversary of Pokemon being released. Yeah. Pokemon is 25. So it, uh, it's it's officially an adult. It's uh, moved out. It's got its first apartment, and it's uh, starting to pay off its college debt, its college loans, and uh, you know, just trying to make its way in the world and uh, just discover who it is. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's in that awkward stage. It it's it's starting to date. It's doing you know, it's it's taking some you know maybe some dance classes or something like that to try to get out there and starting to go to the gym because they realize that it's uh, their, their metabolism starting to slow down. And uh, yeah, seeing the first signs of it, uh, you know, trying the dance classes because that worked better for their schedules on Tuesday nights. You know, they were going to do pottery, but it just didn't work out with their work schedule and they'd have to take two buses and it just, it wasn't worth it. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yes, Pokemon is turning 25 and the Pokemon company, of course, is going to be, uh, doing a whole bunch of celebrations and, uh, promotions and things to mark the fact that Pokemon is turning 25 years old. And the first announcement we have is that they have struck up a partnership with the Universal Music Group and the first prominent artist who will participate in this campaign to some degree, to some extent. We don't know what they're going to be doing, but the first big artist to participate in this is Katy Perry. Hmm. Popular American uh, pop star, American Idol judge. Uh, I mean, she's expanded her notoriety and her name recognition into a line of shoes and perfumes and God knows whatever else. But she will be involved in this celebration in some form. Uh, and I keep saying some form and to some degree because we don't know we don't know what's involved. We don't know if there's going to be like a new, is she going to do a new polka rap? Is she going to record a new song that's uh, just reverent and singing the praises of Pokemon? We don't know. We, we literally know nothing. Yeah. All we know is that the, the news that came out that in the, the press release released by the Pokemon company is that Katy Perry is headlining P25, which is a year long collaboration with Universal Music Group artists to produce music. Uh, yeah, so there is more in the press release. They, it doesn't really say much. It just says, you know, Pokemon has been a constant. Well, I guess this is a quote from Katy Perry talking about whatever she's doing and why she's doing it. Whatever it is that she's doing, it's not clear. But she says, Pokemon's been a constant in my life from playing the original video games on my Game Boy to trading Pokemon cards at lunch to the adventures of catching Pokemon on the street with Pokemon Go. I've even visited the Pokemon Cafe in Japan while on tour, blah, 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 blah. A bunch of stuff about, you know, 
hopefully endearing herself to Pokemon fans about, you know, how legitimate her involvement is with the franchise and how it's probably genuine. And it's probably not just a whole bunch of money paid her way because she's a famous pop star. No, that, that can't have anything to do with it. <laughs> Never. I mean, why would uh, a popular cele- you know, celebrity do something that their heart is not in? What What is the benefit to them? Yeah. No, granted, I don't doubt that she, you know, has familiarity with Pokemon. I mean, she's around our age and I think she's actually a little bit younger than us. So it makes more sense for her to be super into Pokemon. Well, I mean, certainly a bit younger than you. (laughs) Relax. (laughs) (laughs) Good God. So we'll bring you more details and updates on uh, what the Pokemon company has planned for the 25th anniversary celebration of Pokemon through the course of this year. Um, exact details, plans, activations haven't really uh, been announced. I'm sure there will be promotions, uh, things to do just out the wazoo, but we have to get further into the year. We are still just in January, and because we are in January, uh this is always the month, or has been the month for the last many years, when the Games Done Quick people do their awesome Games Done Quick speedrunning telethon, uh, where they raise funds uh, for the Prevent Cancer Foundation. And it was earlier this year, I believe starting that weekend after the uh, the crazy yokels tried to attack their own U.S. Capitol building uh, down in America land. <laughs> so yeah. our attention was kind of diverted from that. So we didn't talk about it then. And also we had our year in review shows. So we're finally just getting to it now, but we are going to tip our caps to the good people at games done quick for their awesome games done quick, uh, 2021 that managed to raise 2,758,848 or $847 for the prevent cancer foundation. Uh, that is a very respectable number. Uh, although it is slightly down from last year's tally, I believe the 2020 edition came in just over $3 million. So this is down a bit, but even so with everything going on in the world, uh, that is still a very good amount of money that they have raised. Yeah, it sure is. It's a, it's a very good amount of money for a very good cause. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the awesome games done quick, uh, speedrunning telethon is now in the books. Uh, later on this year will be the summer games done quick speedrunning telethon and, uh, let us cross our fingers and hope and pray that, uh, there are no other, uh, events, catastrophes, disasters that require the sudden planning of some other horrible event, you know, fundraising tele- speedrunning telethon. Yeah. Which there has been the past couple of years. Yeah, unfortunately. So so let us hope this is a year that uh, kind of returns back to a more quiet and peaceful state where there are just the two games games done quick, uh, speedrunning telethons. Uh, Fingers crossed for those. But again, tip of the cap, good to everyone involved, good to the planners, uh, the organizers, uh, the people who donated, uh, actually parted with their hard-earned monies to this uh, to contribute to the Prevent Cancer Foundation. Good on everyone involved. It's uh, Games Done Quick is one of those just organizations you can rely upon every year to do good and put good out into the world. Yeah. So good on them for that. But I think that about uh, uh, segues... Well, it doesn't segue nicely. I was going to try and dovetail it into our two blasts from the past this week, but no, I it, 
I have no natural connection between those two. Uh, so instead, I'll just simply get to it now and say, you know, it's about that time on the program where we uh, like to take a few minutes to wax, wax nostalgic of uh, things that are celebrating milestone anniversaries. They are big titles that perhaps you uh, recall or perhaps other smaller titles you may have missed. Either way, there are some notable properties and they could be movies, TV shows, games, albums, just some things that we think bear mentioning, bear talking about. And so we'll talk about them now. We have two properties to talk about. One is the younger of the two. One is the older of the two. One's a movie. One is a TV series uh, of the two. Where would you like to start this week? Well, probably I'm thinking probably the younger of the two, because I'm assuming of the older of the two, we'll probably have a little bit more to say. And this is true. The younger of the two, actually, uh, actually isn't really that old. Its debut came 10 years ago as it uh, debuted on, I believe, IFC uh, was its home broadcast network in the United States, uh, airing its first episode on January 21st, 2011, but had a good run of about seven seasons, seven, eight seasons, uh, running all the way until March of 2018. So it ended not really that long ago. It is a show that you've probably heard of. Maybe some people in your circle have watched. Um, you know, maybe some real comedy snobs in your circle have watched and you're just like, I, I don't get it. I don't see the appeal. But, uh, this is, I mean, something I perceive to be kind of a divisive series. Uh, it's a TV series called Portlandia. Yeah. And I say divisive because y- you're either going to get the jokes and think it's hilarious or it's just so not up your alley. Yeah, so I get it. I haven't seen enough of it to really form too much of an opinion, but from what I've seen, I found very funny because you, it's, it's, I think I put it in the same boat as like Napoleon Dynamite, where if you know people like that, you're going to get it. And if you've never really met anyone that's kind of like that, you're going to be like, what the hell is this? Who's like that? <laughs> so Portlandia as a TV series, it's a, a sketch comedy series with uh, Fred Armisen, Carrie Brownstone, or Carrie Brownstein, pretty much playing every part. Yeah. Uh, so in the vein of like a Monty Python or a Kids in the Hall, where it's just, you know, them two or whatever main actors, and they're the ones playing literally every role in the series. And it's set in Portland, which is one of the weirdest, uh, oddest, most eccentric uh, hipstery cities that there is in all the globe. Yeah. <laughs> to put it lightly, yes. And this TV series, this sketch comedy series, it, it's, you know, part love letter, part parody, part send up, part taking the piss out of Portland as a city. Yeah, as a city. But also, like, more broadly, I think, just hipsterism in general? Uh, yes, uh, I think that's uh, fair. Uh, they they take uh, some hipsteriness, like, to its extremes in, in some parts. Yeah, and there's also a lot of poking fun at, you know, some some feminist stereotypes and, you know, some various stereotypes that you'd see in maybe a music scene, let's say. Or, you know, just any sort of, like, local scene type kind of like that. Like, if you've never really been involved in something like that, I could see it really not being your thing. But if you have been, like, it's, it kind of nails it. Yes, it's, 
like Portlandia is a show that caters to like a small niche audience, but like if you get it, you're like, oh yeah, it's it's there. It is all the way those things. But it's yeah, it, it's not broad comedy. So you have to be aware of that before you go into it. Uh and my understanding is from from some people is that Portlandia, I mean, yes, it's was actually filmed in Portland, Oregon itself, but like it actually nails the city and kind of the vibe and uh the weirdness and just the eccentric the eccentric nature of the people and the city. Yeah. There's also I mean, just because of who's involved in like, it was created by Fred Armisen, Kerry Brownstein, and another guy named Jonathan, uh, Crystal, uh, who was, you know, involved with Tim and Eric and all that stuff. But with just the pedigree that Fred Armisen and Kerry Brownstein bring to it has a very like punk rock kind of feel because, you know, Fred Armisen was in punk bands when he was younger. Kerry Brownstein was known for being in Slater, one of the founding members of Slater Kinney, which is, you know, Riot Girl band. So, a lot of it's it's a very has a very punk rock kind of feel to it as well, which furthers the niche aspect of the show, right? So like if you're if you if you're not familiar with punk and just you know don't really know people who are like quote unquote punk in that regard, it might seem very off putting or very awkward or strange or you just might un, like not get some of the characters. But if you do, yeah, like I'm just gonna say like it nails it, it totally nails it. Yes, and I guess that punk background and those punk sensibilities are also where, like, the taking the piss aspect comes from, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's, uh, like, it's a thing to check out, but we warn you that it might not be for you. No, it might not be for you. Like, it, like again, it while it does take the piss out of those things, it's equally parts, like, love letter and or, you know, it's still respectful to the material that it's taking the piss of too. So again, like there, it's a very, it is a strongly feminist show. So that's sort of like, that might be a strike for some people might not want to do it. I get it, I guess, but yeah. And maybe the fact that it's just dealing with such eccentric characters and scenarios that just seem over the top and whatnot that, or settings that seem over the top and just very weird to what you may have seen and experienced in, in your own life, uh, perhaps are not things you can relate to. Totally understand as well. Portland is kind of a weird place. Yeah. So that being said, Portlandia debuted January 21st, 2011. It's 10 years old. Uh, but this next piece of entertainment, older than 10 years old, having released in the United States on January 19th, 2001, making it and 20 years old. And which is just our convenient way of kind of fudging the numbers a little bit because it's actually, it goes back to 2000. In UK, so it's it's older than that by a bit. Yes, but if a tree falls in the UK and we don't hear it over here, does it even count? I mean, I'm not going to even touch that answer with a 20 foot pole. <laughs> Fair. Uh, so this is a film, uh, one of the early films done by noted British director uh, that really cemented his style uh, and his visual style and approach in movies. This is the film simply known as. Snatch. Yeah. Um, yeah, Snatch. It's made, like, I want to say it's like the, like, I, I'm not super familiar with a lot of his movies, but the ones I've seen that I really liked, like, I, 
I'm probably going to say I like the early movies of his, Guy Ritchie. Like, it's sort of like, it was, it's kind of like the second part of Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels in my head. Yeah, so, I, I think that's fair. Because it's like very similar characters, very similar setup, just doing different things. So, if anything, yeah. he, uh, you know, kind of was able to leverage his success from Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels and, you know, people maybe saw what he could do with that film and then he could get some more name actors in this because Snatch is a, a British crime comedy film, but it's got some very notable and very recognizable names to it, which for a small British crime comedy, like with a budget of a whole $10 million, you wouldn't think there's any way they could ever get them. Like, yeah, Jason Statham is in there, but I think he was in uh, Lockstock as well, so he... Yeah. Had some history with Guy Ritchie. Okay, fine. Um, but Vinnie Jones. Vinnie Jones. I think similar idea. Very much fine. so. Uh, Benicio del Toro is in Snatch. Yeah. I don't think he was in Lockstock Two Smoking Barrels. Um, Dennis Farina also in Snatch. Don't think he was in Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Uh, Dennis Farina no. playing, uh, Cousin Avi, who, is entertaining in the movie, but perhaps the most notable name that you might recognize from the list of actors in Snatch, they might go, huh? He's in there? Brad Pitt. Yeah. Brad Pitt played One Punch, one punch Mickey O'Neill, you know, in the movie referred to as a pikey. He's a gypsy boxer. Yeah. Or, you know, the correct term being, you know, Irish traveler, as far as I understand. Um, yeah, in the, in the movie, like, yeah. In the movie, that's what they refer to him. Yes. yes. We, we recognize, we're not, we're not using that term. Like, we, we know gypsy's not a super okay thing to say, but in the movie, that's what they say. Yes, and that's how they, you know, refer and think of them as, and the, the derogatory term being a pikey. Yeah. And so basically, it's a lot of intersecting storylines that, uh, kind of, you know, run parallel to each other and then eventually kind of all come to a head basically in, uh, uh, I believe like a diamond heist that, uh, involve, <laughs> ends up involving all the different characters in some way from all the different parallel storylines. Yeah. And it's a ridiculous story and it's well worth watching if you haven't watched it already. Um, you need to carve out some time to have a good early Guy Ritchie film night. Yeah. I mean, like, if if you're not going to watch anything else just of his just watch Lock Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch it like they're like 1A and 1B if you're going to watch them yes and very much he has his own distinct visual style very heavy on the ramping uh and yeah. what i mean by ramping is you know slow pace slow pace slow pace and then just a whole lot of you know fast uh, zoom you know zoom ins for close ups pull outs you know, a lot of camera work and then also mixed with the editing as well. So to really just ramp up the, the intensity of a scene, uh, the pace of a scene, the pace of the movie, the action in a sequence. Yeah. So very much where he, uh, honed his, honed his style and, uh, became a notable director and then would, uh, go on to do other movies like swept away with Madonna. <laughs> you know, his wife, <laughs> For a period of time, yes, and then go on and actually do Aladdin for Disney? Like, he directed the uh, live-action version of Aladdin for Disney, which 
Okay. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. I don't know how or why that ever happened, but I'm not going to question it. Yeah, and he also did, you know, those Sherlock Holmes movies starring uh, Robert Downey Jr. as Sherlock Holmes. Oh, that's right, too. And those also involve also involved a lot of uh, the ramping effects as well. So, yeah. Um, so yes, he has a very distinct visual style that you see uh, in his early works. Uh, but there's just something about the uh, just the very Britishness of Snatch and Lockstock Two Smoking Barrels that I enjoy. Like, yeah, I think it's also worth noting that to me. That was my introduction to Jason Statham. Like, I, it's because like to me, it was very strange to see Jason Statham start being an action movie guy because I never knew him as that because I initially knew him from Snatch and Lockstock Two Smoking Barrels and he wasn't really an action movie guy. Like, he was kind of just an unassuming guy in those movies. He didn't like, you know, he wasn't like a shirt off ripped, like, you know, like he, to me, if you said he's going to be, you know, a feature player along Sylvester Stallone and a bunch of other action movie guys because he's going to have a storied action movie career in the next, like, 15 years, I'd be like, what? Him? The guy in the trench coat? Really? What? But somehow he made it work. I mean, thanks yeah. in no small part to the, those transporter movies. Yeah. And, you know, like Crank and things like that. Crank is fantastic, by the way, but that's... Not, I'm just, um, as a brief aside, but yeah. So yes, Jason Statham, see him before he became just a, a mainstay of modern action movies in the movie Snatch, which came to North America on January 19th, 2001. And for that, we spoke of the TV series Portlandia. Again, Portlandia, maybe not your thing. If it is, then it's totally going to be up your alley, but it's, it's going to be a take it or leave it. It's kind of an all or nothing thing. Yeah. Uh, just because of the very divisive, I guess, subject matter, approach, themes, vibe to the show. Yeah, that's, that's very fair to say. So it's, uh, just may not be something that you enjoy, but it is still something that, uh, we talked about having, uh, turned 10 years old just the other day. So, uh, uh, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's that old because it ran for eight seasons, only ended in 2018, but still began 10 years ago. So, so yes, so thus it falls under the category of Blast from the Past. So there, the math checks out. <laughs> yes. But that about wraps us up for this week's edition of the Arcade. We thank you so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. We hope you can join us again uh, next time. Uh, if you have any questions or comments that you wish to share or pass along of we always enjoy hearing from you. You can email us info at the arcade show.com. If you have multiple words to uh, share in successive order, or if you just have a uh, quick missive to fire off, you can reach us through social media. We're on Twitter at the arcade show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash the arcade show. And if you haven't followed through with your new year's resolution, perhaps you've forgotten about it entirely. There's been a lot going on the past couple weeks. Totally understand. But you want to subscribe to this program if you haven't already. We are on iTunes. We are on Google Play Podcasts. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So uh, until next time, good night, everybody. Good night. (laughs) 